Looking for a job isn't easy. It used to be that you could apply at a big name tech company and build a great career for yourself. But times have changed. Many of these companies have gone full woke. And if you aren't the right gender, ethnicity, you don't use pronouns, or if you're not an activist for the preferred cause, then good luck. Why would you risk your career on that? At Red Balloon, we're connecting good employees with top quality companies that value you for your skills and your work ethic, not your social activism score. Employers who post jobs on Red Balloon are focused on creating an enjoyable and productive work culture, free from divisive woke mandates. So if you want to find a serious career path without the nonsense, come to Red Balloon and post your resume today. Because you shouldn't have to choose between your job and your values. That's redballoon.work, where you can find your future. At the height of the, the vaccine or the injection program, you know, I was doing at least at least one a week. Sometimes it was one a day of, of doing these adverse event forms. Hey everyone, Michael Thiessen here, and you are listening to Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. This show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and to defend those who stand. And Christian Week exists to provide a practical, balanced, hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. So um, for more information on on how to stand and how to learn how to think about issues of justice from a Christian perspective, go to our website, libertycoalitioncanada.com. For more news from a Christian perspective or Christian stories, go to christianweek.org. We're very thankful for their partnership. If you want to support our podcasting work, head over to our website and click analysis box. Uh, the donations there will be submitted directly to Christian Week um, for the production of the podcast. And if you're interested in supporting our legal cases, which just so everybody knows, we need your support, especially this summer. Um, James Kitchen, our uh, chief litigator, has been very busy over the summer. We need donations towards our legal causes. Please go to Liberty Coalition Canada and click other designations and it will get to our legal department. So today I have the honor of speaking with uh, Greg Chan, uh, Dr. Greg Chan. And Greg, thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to be diving into a very important subject and and I think this is going to be a well-received podcast because of the content you're going to bring. So thanks for coming on the show, Greg. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. So Greg, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself um, as a doctor, uh, as um, someone who just spoke at the uh, National Citizens Inquiry, um, and then maybe start introducing the subject we're going to be talking about today, which has been the vaccine injuries that you've looked into around the COVID-19 vaccine? So I'm a family doctor in Pinoca, Alberta. So it's a small town, about seven, 8,000 people. There's a large catchment area. I've been here since 2009 and um, have a general family practice. So I see people for primary care. 
I also work in the hospital, work in the emergency department. I also um, deliver babies, uh, long-term care, palliative care, home visits. So it's the whole whole thing. So I try to do a bit of everything because it's what I thought I was supposed to be doing. Um, and so during COVID, um, you know, in the first few months, we I was concerned just like probably most people were about the severity of COVID. But um, as things started to, um, un, well, I guess, unfold as far as the the waves of people that were sick and what we were hearing from other parts of the world, um, I started to question whether it was actually as severe as it, it was being, uh, it was the news is telling it to be, especially for people that were younger, like people under the age of 50. So um, by that time, when I started to question, then the vaccines were being rolled out or the injections are being rolled out in December. And my, my wife actually alerted me to the the fact that these injections were a new technology with mRNA technology. So I looked into it with some of the information she gave me and remembering my, my days of science and, you know, um, biochemistry and immunology. I, I was concerned about this new technology because it's nothing that I've seen before. Um, so I kind of made, uh, made my own observations and shared what I knew on uh, social media, tried to talk to colleagues and, and patients about it. But surprisingly, there wasn't a lot of discussion from colleagues or from patients. Like I didn't have patients lining up out the door asking questions about this. You know, um, I'd occasionally have a patient that would have some questions about the injections, um, but um, there really wasn't a lot of discussion. That's something that you brought up to me um, when we spent some time in Alberta recently, just how this um, this new situation changed your intake process um, where you, you didn't have people lining up asking you questions, but the opposite was true. You know, um, so many people, and um, I would I would say that there's a, 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 a significant number of people would just be operating on the fact that there's no health concerns around this new vaccine, this this new technology, and so when you started seeing some um, symptoms. You had to change your intake process for people to even compute that that might be an issue. Why don't you explain that to us? Yeah. Um, so it would like that th thought process came out in, in several layers. And I think the first one is that, you know, if, if this injection, which I thought initially should be given to people at risk. So people who are elderly, people who are high, high risk of having severe illness from this, uh, from this infection. Um, that they should be given it first. And the first red flag was that it was being offered to healthcare workers first, um, ahead of those that were high risk. Then it started being rolled out to the general population. And once you, you could see, it was almost like it was snowballing, like every, every few weeks, here's the next age group that's eligible and the next one, and they just kept rolling it out. Then the thought process in my head is that this new thing is going to be given to a lot of people and now we have this completely wild card that's being given to the general population. We, this is, this is unprecedented for 
like 80, 70, 80, 90%. You could watch the numbers as the months, the weeks and the months passed that more and more people were getting that well, getting injected with uh, these injections. So <clears throat> the thought came to my head that we, I have to really change my usual practice. The usual screening practices for like things like breast cancer, cervical cancer, colon cancer, could these things be thrown out the window now that we have this new new thing that's been applied to the general population? Um, so that was a thought that was going around in my head. Um, I ended up getting COVID in, April, I think, April or May of 2021. So I, I had to be off work for that. And um, when I came back to work, then I had a shift in the emergency departments. And then I, you know, I saw my first patient that uh, had some very strange symptoms, like tremors in her hands and feet and um, couldn't explain it. And I had to actually change my usual history taking to ask the question. So, you know, so when did these symptoms start? So the questions now would be my usual question. So when did this start? Um, you know, just tell me more about the symptoms, what makes it worse, what makes it better. Um, then you, you'd ask the questions like, so as far as the chronology, and then the, you know, I'd ask them, did you have any new medicines prior to get having these, these symptoms? They would say no. Then you have to ask, have you had a vaccine? And they would actually say no. And then I'd have to, actually have to ask, did you have a COVID vaccine? And then it almost linked them and it like, oh yeah, they'd remember that they had this injection, um, but they wouldn't be on the tip of their tongue. You'd actually have to like pry into it by like two or three levels of questioning. Hey friends, I'm happy to talk to you again about Rocklink Investment Partners. With inflation at 40-year highs and economic stagflation on the horizon, growing and preserving your hard-earned capital is of utmost importance. I know it's on my mind. And that's why Rocklink Investment Partners are so essential because they understand the investment challenges of today. Rocklink is an independent investment management firm focused solely on creating portfolios of high-quality businesses anchored to the time-tested principles of value investing, and they do not shy away from essential businesses that do not meet the World Economics Forum's dis definition of ESG. So email rocklink at info at rocklink.com, that's rocklink with a C, or visit them at www.rocklink.com. And again, that's link with a C. I have, I have a few kind of reader response questions formulating in my mind out of that. Um, number one, you've been very careful not to say the word vaccine, and I think most of my listeners would know why. Could you, if we have some new listeners who haven't watched any of our deep dives into vaccinology and, and these types of things, um, could you could you explain to our listeners why you're being careful not to call this a vaccine? And then secondly, um, you mentioned that you had a red flag with um, – frontline workers. Uh, that's a, I think that's an interesting take, Greg, because I just spent some time with another doctor recently um, who would share some of your concerns, but that, that was not a red flag for them. That was like, you're, you're, you're the frontline uh, in war. So you put on bullet armor, uh, you a bulletproof vest and a helmet um, kind of maybe explain those two things. Um, 
um, for our listeners? Why aren't you calling it a vaccine? And also then why would the frontline workers be, uh, be a red flag for you? Yeah. Um, so the traditional, um, definition of a vaccine is that you'd get, um, a fingerprint of the infectious agent. So a bro broken up protein or, you know, uh, something from the outside of the infectious agent, um, that would be one possibility. Second possibility would be what's called an attenuated version of the infectious agent. So something that's dumbed down or less virulent, or it could be a dead empty shell of that infectious agent. So it could be one of those three possibilities. And then that would be mixed together with what's called an adjuvant, which is a chemical that increases your immune response to the injection. Um, and then your body would then go and attack that bolus or that deposit of those, those proteins that are foreign. So that's a traditional vaccine. Your immune system would take that up and then it would develop some memory for it, whether it's making antibodies or, or T cells. These are different parts of your immune system that would process that information and then categorize it, make a memory of it, and then so that they could respond to it if it was to see it again. These injections with the mRNA and adenovirus vector vaccines, that would be the um, AstraZeneca or Janssen. So they provide a genetic material, a blueprint for the offending, uh, offending protein that's found in COVID in SARS-CoV-2. Completely different mechanism of, of getting your immune system to identify this foreign protein. So. Um, and that's why I don't call it a vaccine. It's an injection and the genetic material. There is so many questions as far as and uncertainties as to how much is being delivered, how much protein is being processed. This protein is actually being expressed by your own cells. So now instead of attacking this deposit of protein, now this, the offending substance is being made by your own muscle cells or your own immune cells. Um, and the genetic material, does it actually stay where it's deposited? Does it do something to the, um, you, the host DNA? I mean, um, you're, you're delivering genetic material. So, I mean, by definition, that would be gene therapy. So that's the thing that is very concerning. And it doesn't fit the usual standard of vaccine. And as we've, as we've probably heard previously, the definition of vaccine has changed over time. I could... I remember taking screenshots of different dictionaries and, and I even have an old dictionary here that states vaccines as being what I originally described. And then they were changing to involve now, like, like what the CDC, CDC says is that you can have a vaccine that just develops an immune response and it completely sidesteps the traditional design of vaccines. So that's why I'm careful about using the word. Um, and I, I really want to be, sharp about what I'm describing when I'm talking about these injections versus what, a, what we know a traditional vaccine to be. Okay. Then on to that second question, why were you concerned for frontline doctors? Is that not normal habit to give frontline workers, um, some type of treatment? Um, what, why was that a red flag for you? Well, from what I've seen, at the time there like young people were had a like a very high survivability rate so um 
for me to be exposed to something that could potentially has an unknown, we don't know what the side effects are. And for all healthcare workers to, to get this, that's a concern. Like, why would you give all of your frontline workers this new injection? And then, I mean, what if it actually caught its immediate harm to all of us? Like that, that would have been, <laughs> I mean, thank, thank, thank goodness that didn't happen. But, you know, that's what I initially had a, had a thought of, like all of, all the people I knew had the injection. And I had this thought that, you know, I might be the last person standing like that's, that's a, that's a very frightening thought to have. Um, but also that, you know, if I was, if I was to be exposed to this virus, my chance of surviving is very high and natural immunity, I thought would be more protective than getting this injection. So, I mean, those are the, probably the red flags. You're, you're getting this unknown and what could be the immediate side effects. It was not clear. We didn't have a lot of data to know. Yet we'd inject all the people on the front line who were looking after people. Um, so that, that was a concern. And whether it would actually have any effect on, um, you know, as a shield to block transmission, um, because that, that would be the main concern. We're talking about a respiratory illness that could spread. Um, so the thought was if, you're, if you've had the injection, then you'd stop the spread. I, I, I remember hearing that over and over again. If you have the injection, you won't spread it. Well, oh yeah, the commercials immune. like you could you could go hug your grandparents again. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. messaging was very strong, but I, I I there wasn't any data to support that. So to the thought that we would take this injection, it would develop a bloodborne response to the vac to COVID, but it would prevent us from spreading it. it the logic didn't make sense. It was not a logical train of thought. So the that that was another red flag was the 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 inconsistencies that with with the science and what it would actually do compared to what they claimed it would do for for transmission so you had you had covid um as did so many of us um how bad was it for you uh, for me it was 10 days of low energy like very low energy frustratingly low energy and a bit of congestion, uh, but likely not no worse congestion than my average um, allergy season congestion. So for me, I can truly say it was um, an intense lack of energy that was would make me feel like I had a like a like I was battling something. Um, but outside of that, then it wasn't a, a big deal at all. Um, how was it for you? Yeah, I, I would say it was, it was like a mild cold. Um, I, I didn't have a fever. I had um, a change in smell. But that, interestingly for me, I've, I've had that for several years. Every time I had a cold, I would have a change in smell and taste. It would uh, be a very floral scent that would occur with the, the infection. And then I would recover. Um, so that was my first run of, run of having COVID in 2021. I didn't have it a second time. Um, in 2022. And again, it was my mild symptoms. Yeah. And I just asked that question because again, Greg, we're talking about almost a global change of medical practice over something that for the vast majority of us, we're looking at this going, it's a common cold. And um, I've pastored for over 20 years and the influenza season and the cold season um, do affect senior citizens uh, in their in their uh, later years far differently than they do the young and 
um, and uh, those of us who are in our middle years. And I couldn't see any difference, really. Like I couldn't, I, I with my own eyes in our own community, um, living as freely as we wanted. I couldn't see any any difference, and yet uh, we had the medical community ignore informed consent. We had the Canadian Minister of Health, you know, ram through a advanced therapeutic protocol that that where the first where the first drugs were the COVID-19 shots. Um, and we lost most of our friends over just saying, I'm going out today with some people and uh, no, I don't want to wear a mask. And so I, uh, we, we bring that up. I'm, I'm not trying to make everybody feel bitter, but I do have a sense that this, that this video is going to um, be of interest to many listeners because so many people are saying, well, another contentious point was we anecdotally heard about lots of vaccine injuries. And you would look across the you would look across the playing field at like maybe a family member, um, maybe uh, a, a beloved friend. Who would say I'm not hearing about anything? I like I, I'm I'm just I'm not hearing about anything, and so um, I think Greg, you are maybe one of the first guys I'm talking to who has said, "Well, no, I've I've now gone myself and gathered up personal information from my medical practice." Um. And so I'm excited to have this conversation, and I think it's going to be of great value to people. So you were concerned about this. You then started watching for it and listening for it. Everybody just – so you've already kind of heard from Greg. This is not people running to Greg um, because they're they're self-testifying. Um, this is people – many people um, – what's the word? Um missing maybe some obvious connection points, um, not being fully transparent just because of their, the assumed safety. And so I think that that would likely lead you to a fairly good sampling, uh, to be able to, to intake people and, and see how they were doing. So Greg, why don't you walk us through your numbers and walk us through what you've observed since 2021? I believe you started really going after this in, in 2021. Um, before I do that, can I also just say a couple other red flags that I noticed? I don't know, viewers. What do you think? Can Greg say other red flags? <laughs> of course you can. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it, Greg. Any, you know, we, we, we've got new listeners who are now joining us because they're watching everything else that's going on in culture and maybe they hadn't thought about, about this. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The other thing that was a red flag was, um, the possible use of fetal cells in, in the, in the injections and, you know, um, that, that was a thing that I had found on, on, um, a few sources that, and, and trust, trustworthy sources that, that looked at the, the, uh, development and, um, production of these injections. Um, and so initially that's a red flag. And then also like having brought it up to other people that I'm concerned about it, it would get dismissed. So it's like multiple red flags would come up. So hey, I, I'm concerned about this. I, I would probably have a conscientious objection to using this for that reason. And then it would be dismissed when you talk to a reasoned colleague about it. You're like, oh, well, that's that's not an issue. Or even looking at our Canadian Medical Association journal, they 
when they talk about the ethics of the injections and whether they're valid or not. And so the messaging was slowly changing, saying that, well, your your conscientious objection may not apply if we if we have to, you know, give this out and it's going to help people and you just need to go ahead and do it. So that was another another red flag for for these injections. Um, and then, I appreciate oh, that. I'm oh. just going to jump on a hobby horse of socialized medicine, everybody. Uh, socialized medicine very quickly turns into socialistic medicine. Um, so uh, let's help support guys like Dr. Chan uh, to uh, be able to practice med- medicine freely. Go ahead. Sorry, I just had to jump in there. And I mean, there, there are just multiple layers that kept kept coming up that were just like red flags. So the the other one was the um, the whole uh, the whole uh, discussion about mandates. And it's like once the ethics were thrown out the window, then it's like, well, I can you can tell that that's that's a bad, bad decision, especially with the therapeutic that's under emergency use authorization. Um, why would we, why would we do that? Especially for people that have low, low risk and, and the transmission issue is not, not addressed. Um, so, um, those are the red flags that I, I really kind of, kind of, uh, became aware of initially when, when they were first coming out and, um, you know, you, you, you try to have a reasoned discussion with people about it and it was just, no, that's, that's Greg, you can say that, but. That's uh, that's very strange what you're thinking. We're just going to keep keep going on. Okay, so, so that um, led I'll, you to I'll start do... kind of doing your own research. So let's hear about that. Yeah. So um, I started to keep track because I my thought in my head was that um, the although they say that they're going to keep track and they wanted us to report it, um, I I really didn't trust that the that um, vaccine injuries would be would be you know given a fair hearing. Um, and my first experience of trying to put in these vaccine injuries in the emergency department was very challenging. It was very difficult. So we can either go with a federal or provincial system. So I thought, well, the federal federal government said we need to use these injections. So I thought I'd go through the, the federal system. And you go to the website, you click on the link, and it just goes in a cycle. You, you, the link leads you back to the original page. You click on the link for reporting it. It goes back to this page and it goes back in a circle. So, and this is, again, this is when I had, after I had COVID. So this is in May of 2021, you know, the vaccines already rolled out and, or the injections were rolled out in December of 2020 and January, 2021. You think a process would already be in place and well oiled machine. You just enter the information, then it'd be done. But it, it wasn't, it was very frustrating. So I, my first couple were written by hand on a PDF document and I had to fax it in and I had no, no receipt of whether it actually went through or not. Um, and these are two people that I'd seen in the emergency department. Then after talking to some of my colleagues and they said, well, did you know there's an Alberta version of this? And I wasn't aware of this, but at the time, but um, there is a webpage with the Alberta adverse event following immunization program. And that one was much, much easier to use. Very simple, you could fill it out. But I made it a habit to fill it out. And before I submitted it, I would print the form. And then I would scan it in my chart in my clinic chart at the, at the clinic. 
And I just started recording and keeping track of these, these injuries that I'd saw and that I'd seen or that I thought were related. Now, I, what we're doing is forensic science. And, I, and I've um, been keenly aware of the difference between observational bench science and forensic historical science. So when someone say, says that they had something happen as a result of this injection, we're trying to piece together what what the most plausible answer is. So what I would do is I would, if it fit in chron chronological time within the four weeks, and that's on the Alberta um, uh, submission page, then I would submit it. So at at the height of the the vaccine or the injection program, you know, I was doing at least at least one a week. Sometimes it was one a day of of doing these adverse event forms. And, you know, thankfully, none of these were, were, were very s severe things. But um, for the thing, things that I did submit, it was as mild as an unusual rash to a person who was unconscious and had to be taken to the, to the emergency department. So um, there's a wide range of different effects that I'd seen. And in total, I've, I've kept track. And so from May of 2021 till today, I've got um, 57 um, submissions for... Uh, related to the COVID injections. So, Greg, just as a doctor, I'm thinking of the word inertia. I'm just thinking of the word, uh, like, just how much inertia, like, energy coming at you to have you not click those buttons. Like, the, like, the, 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 the force of nature that you had to become in order to submit these, you know, while the federal system isn't working, we're spending $94 million, I believe on the arrive can app um, that, that, you know, that's working about travel restrictions. And I would just have assumed that that had to take a lot of determination to keep going, even even at the Alberta level, where it was more user friendly. Um, good for you, Alberta. Feel free to separate from Canada anytime. Um, what, like, can you just walk our people through like how much effort that took? You know, versus versus the doctor who is giving the injections and not following up like it just how how much did it, you have to really gear yourself up to do this it was a it was a shift in in thinking so like we said about asking the history and physical or history and then doing a proper history and having a special history for these covid injections it was a change and um there's there's a pull to to not do it is like you know you you're busy i've uh, my usual my office appointments are usually about 10 minutes but i'm always behind um and so you get a you know there's there's a pull that well i'm too busy to actually fill these forms out um there isn't any monetary incentive to filling these things out so i'm doing it because i think it's the right thing to do um, so there's, it's, I think it's a pull between while well, you're pressured because you have to do this work and you're in the emergency department or in your clinic and you're running late, there's people waiting for you. But at the same time, it's important that, that I think these things have to be reported. Um, so for me, the, the need to report these things was, 
was higher than than the pull on on my time or 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 the other pressures that were occurring at the same time you just recently testified at the national citizens inquiry can you share with us a little bit about what the nci is um and can you um kind of share with us that experience so both like what is it and then how are they how are they taking in information and then what was your experience like yeah um so um as part of this whole um um experience of going through covid um i fortunately came across a group of physicians that uh were very supportive in our own small group um and it's through a um you know, a small messaging group. And it's from that, that um, one of the people in that group was part of the uh, National Citizen Inquiry. And that's how I got connected with them to be asked to testify for this. My understanding is that the NCI was initially put on by Preston Manning, and he, he struck this commission to try and get other stories, other voices to give their testimony so that it could be recorded and that um, at the end, uh, a summation of what what Canadians have gone through, not just what the mainstream media would say, um, what real Canadians have gone through from coast to coast. And so um, they take lay, lay um, people, they take uh, physicians, teachers, lawyers, and other experts that would, uh, clergy that would uh, um, give their testimony. So I, I think the purpose of the NCI from my perspective is to really tabulate and, and document for history that these, it was not all a positive thing. We didn't just grin our, grit our teeth and bear it and get through it, that there were harms from doing the things that were done in the last three years from public health measures to lockdowns, to these injections, to mandates, um, that, that it wasn't all done in a, positive fashion and that there were some other other voices that had set stood up and said something at the time i have a real joy in the thought that my podcast will likely have a significant majority of people who have testified at the nci on that um i have that joy and i'm communicating with that word because it's not pride in in what we've done, but it is, it is the joy of being able to go back and look at our podcast lineup and all of the way from across the country. I think this show has put together a national citizens inquiry. And I'm, I, I, I find it such a resource folks. If you're listening and I, I know that that's, I know that that is uh <laughs> giving myself a compliment. It's not necessarily giving myself a compliment. It's the joy of being able to talk to people like you, Greg, who are willing to put your reputation on the line and speak openly about what so many people were unwilling to do. And then the amount of great research that, um, that's been done and to be able to showcase some of that research. So I, I'm, I'm really glad that we've been a part of this, um, this, citizens speaking up um what was your experience like when you testified uh, did you go to ottawa and testify in person or 
did you do it over over Zoom? How did how did that work? Um, so it was set up in Red Deer, and um, so there were other other speakers. I, I was able to to book off some time to make it there. Um, so I thought it was important to do it in person and to um, be part of the inquiry um, because it was it was in a city that was close that I could get to. Um, and and now was, we I've been we've been tracking with it a little bit. Has the whole thing been done in Red Deer? Um, so they they started in Truro, and then Toronto. Winnipeg, yeah. Saskatoon, Red Deer, Vancouver, um, Quebec City, and then finishing in Ottawa. Okay. That, I, I knew it was in a variety of places. I didn't know where it was right now. Great. That, so it was it was nearby. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was a great experience because a lot of these things that I've 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 talked about at the NCI are things that I've I've experienced and I, you just kind of hold on to them. And it's not that I haven't tried to talk to people about it. You know, you try and talk to the people that you normally would speak to that are in authority. So, you know, people in Alberta Health Services and it doesn't go anywhere. You talk to your college, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, so, you know, you try and try and have conversations with people that you think you should be having conversations with and it, and it seems to just go nowhere. So, and these experiences are, are real. Like the people that I talk to are real people and they're, they're people that have gone through this and we're, we're encouraged to have these things done. And, um, it's not, it's not going to be documented anywhere. So I, I, it was a very, um, it was like, it took a load off my shoulders as far as being able to say these things and to, to give a truthful testimony of what I've, what I've, uh, gone through. So let's talk a little bit about the 57 cases that you reported. Um, I know that you've redacted them all for the NCI and that that's important. What are some of the more severe cases that you dealt with? And, and you, you said most of them are, were minor and, uh, but why don't you just walk us through what was some of the things you did have to deal with? Yeah. Um, so I mean, the one that really stuck out to me that um, occurred was when a young young person was asked to get the injection, and this person had already had COVID, um, so you know they they would have recovered immunity. I think that's probably a better description um, from uh, smarter people than me that have uh, looked at this. So this person had recovered immunity, and within a few weeks of having it, they were encouraged to have the injection. So they had the injection and then within 24 hours, they were found on the floor in their house on, and they had to be, um, they, they called 911 and this person was brought to the hospital hospital to be assessed. Um, and you know, this person was a high performance athlete and they were performing at a level that they were in a comp competitive sport, competitive hockey. And, um, so they had COVID and they were actually recovering to the point where they, he, he was going to return to his usual competitive sport, took the jab, and then he was down and he had to go to the hospital and to be checked. Um, and from his, from what he told me that he had, um, the physician who saw him said, yes, this could be related to the injection. You shouldn't have another one. And his next like three months, he couldn't perform at the level of activity that he was experiencing before the injection. So, you know, he couldn't do any of the activities. He basically had to sit down or lay down when he was trying to exert himself at all. He was pale. 
He was, you know, sweaty. He had no exercise tolerance. Um, and so I, I somehow got connected with him and, and started to get investigations to see what else is going on. Um, you know, for my preliminary physical exam and investigations, I couldn't see anything, but, um, connected him with specialists and fortunately all the tests were normal and it took a while, but he, he eventually recovered to the point where he's able to do things again. But, um, you know, um, it was, it was very, very, um, strange that, um, you know, he had this, in, this thing happen to him. You'd submit an adverse event form. And from my recollection, um, he was told that he should be injected again from the adverse event program. Um, so th that was one that sticks. Out. I, I know I'm picking the one that's most, uh, most, um, obvious or, or most, uh, um, shocking, but there are many of them that were kind of rash or diarrhea or headache that was unusual. So, but that was the one that really stuck out to be being very obvious. That was, um, uh, a cardiovascular event. Um, and, um, he was told that he should get the second shot. It's just shocking. Uh, Greg, a lot of the anecdotal stories that we would have heard that, 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 that Christians that I know were actually, you know, sitting down and journaling every time they heard stories of this would be changing in, uh, women's men's menstrual cycles. Um, um, that was a pretty common one or, um, feeling an, an ongoing feeling of, uh, sickness, like just repeated, repeated illness, like a weakened immune system. And, uh, obviously the, the bigger ones out there that, you know, I, I can think of two personal experiences near me where people were dealing with either myocarditis or, um, the other one, uh, paleocarditis. Pericarditis. Um, did you come across any of those in, in your reporting or, uh, were they, were they different than that? Yeah, it's, it was hard to diagnose myocarditis. Like I, I didn't, there, there were a couple that, I, that had chest pain and shortness of breath or reduced exercise tolerance. So functionally it, 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 it seemed to fit with, um, uh, a cardiovascular change. Um, and, and myocarditis. Now, um, it, it, it's not easy to diagnose it because, um, you know, sometimes the, the blood tests that you do for it are, are normal. And then to get the more detailed imaging tests to, to make the diagnosis, like a cardiac MRI, that's, that's nearly impossible to get. Like if you phoned for, for that, it would be difficult to get it like soon you'd have to, you'd have to really speak to someone to actually try and get it done right away. Okay. What about, what about other blood issues? Did you come across any other blood issues like the menstrual issues or, um, um, I know people were very concerned with blood clotting, things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't have anyone that had a, like a blood clot in, in their leg or in their lung. So it's a deep venous thrombosis or a pulmonary embolus. So I, I, I didn't have any that I could directly, um, or that I could, that fit in the chron chronology of having the injection. Um, but I did have a couple of patients that had a change in their menstrual cycles. Um, so, so that I, I did observe that in, in the, 
than the 57 submissions. There was there were a couple of patients that had that. So that would be pretty concerning as a as a as a as a young woman. Um, can you talk to that a little bit from the medical side of things of of like the I don't know the, what 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 is potentially going on when you have a change or what is the potential harm to a woman if there if there's been a a change in that respect. I mean, f- physiologically, then um, the uh, the normal cycle occurs because of ovulation. So a, a woman will have uh, will re- have a dominant follicle that comes up in the ovary and then they release an egg. And if that egg is not fertilized and then it passes through, um, then there's no feedback back to the ovary that there's a pregnancy. So there's no, no, um, then there's no sustaining of this environment in the uterus that is ready for a, uh, um, for fertilized egg for, for the baby. Um, so if there's no, no environment there, then they shed the lining, they have a menstruation. And then the cycle repeats itself when, an, when another dominant egg comes up in the ovary, it's released. So that's a monthly event that occurs. So if there's a disruption in that, and the only reason for that is the person had received the injections, you know, what else is it? I mean, I know that there are other medical issues that can affect menstruation. So a person that's under physical stress, if they had a major um, uh life-changing event, whether it's emotionally or physically, yes, menstrual cycles would change. Obviously, the, the obvious one is if someone's pregnant. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are other reasons for it. But, you know, in a person who's going along in their life and having no issues, they have the injection, and then they have a change in menstrual cycles. And, I mean, the, the most common or the, the most obvious reason would be the, the injection by process of, you know, in process of investigation, you'd, you'd pick the most likely thing that occurred just before this change in, in a normal, regular behavior had occurred. Right. And, and, and the implications of that for the patient are um, some type of fertility implications, because again, if the cycle is interrupted or did you, did you come across that it was just changed its patterns or are we talking about infrequency or are we talking about a, um, a, a more in, in intense um, bleeding, those types of things like it, from what you've just described, which we all, I think who have made babies and, and made people, I think we understand is that you want that to be um, normal, frequent, um, predictable. And what, um, I would assume then if these things are being interrupted, it's going to an infrequency and an abnormality of some sort, not just a, oh, it was the third week of the month and now it's the first week of the month. Uh, am I right in, in thinking that that is the case that you would have observed? Yeah, that's the logical conclusion. Like if, if a person's normally having their periods, then we, we, we would think that they're actually ovulating. You know, a person who's not ovulating then they have a lack of periods or irregular periods and there, there are medical conditions where that occurs like polycystic ovarian syndrome, for example, when you don't ovulate, then the periods are very infrequent. So in, in the same way. So um, if a person is having regular menstrual cycles, you think they're ovulating. So if there's a disruption in that, then we, we would, we would suspect logically that they're, they're not ovulating then. And then fertility could be affected. 
So that's the next step, right? If a person has a change in their menstrual cycle, so, so something, the ovaries have been affected, something in the brain ovary connection or the ovaries themselves have been affected. So what, what effect could this have on fertility? And that's, we don't, we haven't answered that question, but that, that is the, the next logical step. It's not just menstrual cycles. It's what's, what's that connected to? And that's connected with fertility. So Greg, where does your faith come in to this? Uh, where does your, where does your, where does your faith in Christ come into this? I know you and I uh, have gotten to know each other recently and I, I've, I've appreciated your testimony and, and, you know, I have found in this whole conversation, you know, you're dealing with either Bible thumping God loving Christians or libertarian pot smokers. And you're, you are like, that's the, the that's the two people groups you're dealing with when you're talking about this. Now, the libertarians maybe I don't want to give them all a bad a bad uh, rap with the pot smoking joke, but just like people who are are who love liberty and they're trying to protect liberty, they may not understand all those implications. Or you're dealing with Christians who have a, a fairly well developed worldview and they felt compelled. So. Everybody, I know that I lead the witnesses. This is not a court case, so I get to lead Greg when I get to ask him these questions. Um, um, Greg, where, you know, when did you, did you ever sense that this was a, a spiritual matter, that this was a Christian matter? Um, when when did that kind of compute for you, if it did? For me, my, my faith has become more real since um, I had a, um, a serious issue in my my life uh, prior to COVID, so it became my my faith has become more active since that time. Um, but even up to COVID, I would still have this idea. Well, I need to do. I'm I'm a doctor here, and I go to church here, and yes, I'm I, I'm a Christian, and that affects my whole my whole life. But you kind of really don't understand what that means until you go through something like what we've gone through in the last few years. Um, so where it really came, came, um, alive as far as the faith is that what we could see with the, were there lies that were being put out time and time again, regarding the narrative around COVID and the narrative around the injections, especially regarding the benefits that they're inflated. Um, and that they were beneficial for all, which is, which is a half truth that the origins were not, um, as, um, as clean as what we were being told and that the benefits would be, um, for society as a whole, when that's not, that was never proven. So whenever all these lies had come up, then, then, you know, my, my, my internal sense, which is, I think the Holy spirit was showing me that this is not right. And when there's lies upon lies and upon lies, you just get that compass or that internal thermometer barometer that tells you this is, this is wrong. Red flags are going up all over the place. So that, that was the first, uh, sense that this is a, this is definitely a spiritual battle because everyone is moving in this direction to say, you need to get this thing. And literally that that's just like what, what Jesus had said that you must take the narrow road. 
You need to take the narrow road. Don't go the wide road. And you can see everyone going this direction. And then I'm just standing here. My wife and I are just standing here, just watching this occur. Um, so it's seeing those big concepts uh, come to life when we, we never really had to do that. I mean, you, you did that before COVID, like, well, we believe in sanctity of life. A lot of people have, have, have are unsure of that. But here, it was like very clear, like we're standing firm and everyone else is going in that direction. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's a, a big picture of it, but I can, I can drill into more detail for, for I, how I saw, how my wife and I had God working, like we, we, we really had to trust him through this whole process. And I, I can tell more about that, but yeah, if you have a question, I can answer. Yeah, no, that, that, that was a really good description. And I, um, I have, I have two questions that, that I was just moving on. So it's at, at some point, this, this, this whole, like they're walking there, we're standing here. Um, at one point that led to a lawsuit. Can you tell people about the lawsuit that you're involved in in Alberta? Yeah. So, um, so a bit of background for that lawsuit. So, um, the Canadian medical association is a, an association would give, which gives doctors a national presence. So then you can say, well, we're part of this organization. They represent us. Doctors are now like come together. So, yeah, at the table for which tables, probably the, the federal health Canada to make your, make your presence known. Um, so in August, they made a statement that, that in, in conjunction with the Canadian nurses association, that, um, it should be mandatory for all healthcare workers to receive this injection. Um, so when they started having that messaging, you kind of pay attention to this and say, okay, well, let they could say that, but let's see if it happens. And lo and behold, by the end of August, Alberta Health Services announces, we we believe that every person needs to be in taking these injections. And we have a deadline of this date, and it's going to happen. So this group that I was talking about, we started coming together to formulate a plan on how to come together and to push back against this mandate. The stories that we heard were that people were, were actually very concerned about the mandate, obviously, but actually that people were thinking of taking their own lives because of this mandate. So because they were, they, they felt that strongly about these injections. So we felt it was important for us to put out a letter to be front, to be in present, to be known um, to the public that there are doctors and health professionals that do not agree with the mandate based on the principles of informed consent. Um, so that letter went out and we had all these signatures, but then we had to f sort through that and it had quite a negative press. Um, but at least it, it came out and, and there were people that, that signed it. Sorry. I'm not, you paused there. I, I'm not sure if you were waiting for me to laugh. Like, <laughs> of course in a negative press thing, like, <laughs> Yeah. Did, did anything we do trying to tell the truth, not get negative press? Sorry. Yeah. I'm just thinking of the CBC article about our, uh, about Liberty Coalition Canada released this week in case people hadn't gone and read that one, uh, negative press. But the funny thing was, it was even within our groups of like 
people who are looking for freedom. So there was a particular individual that attacked us because we, we didn't do it the right way. So this person had a very clear, you have to do it this way. If you don't do it this way, then it's the highway. So, um, so we had attacks from all over. We went with a constitutional lawyer to try and push, get this thing th through. And I thought we did it with the best information we had, knowing the situation of people that were, their lives were at risk because of, of suicidal ideation. So in this group, then Dr. Eric Payne, <laughs> Dr. Eric Payne is, he had this letter that he was putting out to, to the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. So he wrote a private letter outlining his concerns with these injections for children. He's a pediatric neurologist out of Calgary. And, you know, we all kind of came together from our different places and he was part of this group. And um, so he's, he put out this message. He's like, you know, by the way, I'm putting a lawsuit against AHS. Anyone want to join me? <laughs> so I, I saw that note and then um, I was busy with work. So I didn't really kind of sign on to it. And then I remembered like, and again, that's, I don't want to make it sound like me. The Holy Spirit kind of made me remember, oh yeah, you got to remember to sign up for this thing. And out of this group of people, the four of us decided to stand up. And the interesting thing is that the four of us are all Christian. So, um, and so uh, myself, Dr. Eric Payne, and there's an anesthetist in Calgary and a resident in family medicine early in their career. So the four of us decided to sign on to this lawsuit. So, um, and the lawsuit was specific, specifically against the idea of this mandate and that, um, that it, uh, there was concerns that these injections are not safe, completely safe, and that there are risks of taking it and we shouldn't be mandated to be receiving these injections. How far along is the lawsuit, Greg? Well, um, there was a lot of back and forth that happened in September. So this lawsuit, uh, and I, I should say that this lawsuit um, became public at the same time that we were discussing a vaccine mandate in our clinic. <laughs> so, um, you know, all the discussions about mandates were coming out and we had this big debate in our clinic about whether we should have it. And then, so uh, after all the jockeying and negotiating, it, it came out that we were going to strongly encourage our staff to get it but not have a mandate but then um in the in the time from us agreeing to that to actually giving the letter out this lawsuit came out where um i alleged that the vaccines can cause death <laughs> and this is after our letter was designed for our staff saying well you should get it because it's safe and effective so you know um you know i and i love my colleagues i love them and but it it you know, they were thinking one thing and I was thinking another thing. And I just thought, you know, this thing has to come out. And when that came out, it completely exploded the whole uh, letter we were going to to give our staff. <laughs> They're like, and you said it caused death. What are you going to do with you, Greg? Like, we, we can't we can't work with you. Like, they, and it was a, quite a heated, heated thing that happened in our office. I mean, thankfully, we're, we're through it. But um, the lawsuit came out at the same time as that that whole um, discussion. And thankfully we didn't have a mandate in our office. And ho hopefully it informed but, your staff uh, in your own office as it, as it likely is informing um, people all across Canada and Alberta. Um, so where, where is it at? It like, uh, is it, um, has it, has it seen 
court yet? Has it um, seen discovery yet? Where, where, where is the case at? Yeah, so we um, eventually it came to a hearing in, in December. And after the, um, the hammer came down from Alberta Health Services, um, and um, when the judge heard um, our case and the lawyer's case from AHS, you know, we had looked at their submissions and their information. They looked at um, what we had to say or affidavits. And at the end of the day, the, the judge actually said that um, because you're your employee, the four doctors, you're an employee, your employer has set forth a rule. And because you're not abiding to the rule, then then the court does not want to get involved if um, there's a dispute between employee and employer. So you must go through the process of having being disciplined by your employer and the court doesn't want to get involved in that. So that, that was the end result of that, the initial hearing that we had. Okay. And so has that it gone anywhere December. further or is it your, the four of you are now deciding whether to receive discipline in order to further take the court? Cause this is, this has actually been a common issue. The common issue, and, and, and James Kitchen always reminds people when they start a lawsuit went with Liberty Coalition Canada, um, we, we, if you're a union or your government, there's very little power to, to start um, until the discipline's happened. And um, that's, that's unfortunate because it's your livelihood. So where has that left you all? Have you um, dropped the suit then? Well, um, I, I should say that um, the person that was helping us was very gracious. So he he didn't like there, he didn't ask for any like he said you can donate to my GoFundMe page, but he didn't ask us to to uh, to foot a bill for this. And th th we, he was very gracious to help us with this uh, with this legal action. Um, <clears throat> between December and when the lawsuit stopped, which was March or April, um, the co you know the trucker convoy occurred. Um, and in that time as well, um, Dr. Verna Yu was let go as the CEO of Alberta Health Services, and the mandate was actually dropped as well. So because of those two facts, then our, our legal case was essentially over. You know, we, we didn't feel, and according to our, our lawyer, he, he said that it would be, um, it would be fine for us to stop because, um, there was actually another four physicians that were, um, vying for, uh, recovered immunity and to have that recognized. And from what we understand, Alberta Health Services is trying to um, increase our costs to to make it uh, a very expensive endeavor um, in the background. So the, um, our, our lawyer said that we should just stop, stop the legal action because we achieved the goal, I think, um, that the mandate had stopped. Good. Well, folks, that is the way it works sometimes. Sometimes people are wondering when, how will this get decided in court? And the fact that the courts um, uh, are are bound to some of, to, to their own rules, still political wins because things are in court um, are, are very valuable. That's, that's partly why advocacy um, supporting uh, individuals like Dr. Gregory Chan uh, in what they're doing, you know, sometimes you you just win if things go away. We we had that experience with a young dental student, where you know we were able to represent him until um, until the, you know there was no longer a, a 
a reason to do that, uh, Mr. Tight Grabber. And, um, uh, uh, it, it was, it was very beneficial to, to him that we helped, but it, what we didn't see our final uh, judgment rendered in a court system. So Greg, I think it's great that you were able to take that on and, and, and be a part of that. We all, we know some of the other physicians that were a part of that and, um, Good men. Um, you mentioned that all four of you are Christians. And again, that's that just gives – there's just so much credibility for everybody who's been involved in this. That you, you have to understand how how many people were motivated by their love for Christ, their love for the truth, um, to be involved in this type of situation. Um, Greg, why don't you uh, just finish with a, with a thought or two, and then I'll wind us up. Yeah, and I think my Christian thought matured, <laughs> matured through this process, because I initially thought that the the Christian reason for not taking these injections were was because of the the sanctity of life, and you know you can use that argument, but it actually doesn't hold up very well because there's so many other things that we we are involved in that that um, may have ties to you know um, uh, <clears throat> those fetal cell lines, right? But really, the the issue is that it's it's the, for my, from my perspective, the Christian issue is that it's an issue of free will, because God had designed us to have free will. We could freely choose Him or not choose Him, and that's right from Genesis, and um, and that was the reason that really came came to the front as far as why I resisted the mandate. It's because we are given free choice, and we should have free choice to decide whether we do do something or not and that that's one of the basic things that happened in the beginning is that we were given that free choice and to not be given that free choice then that's a violation of my christian beliefs so that's that's one thing i, I thought would be important to say about um what's happened through that um and another story mike about this um, so um i read my bible like one chapter a day sometimes more than that but um, I was in my second read-through <laughs> during this time. And the day that my uh, Alberta Health Services uh, boss wanted to talk to me, like eventually got delayed and delayed and delayed. But when that day actually occurred, I was actually reading Daniel on that time. So, you know, like I, I didn't set that up. I didn't make that happen. I'm just faithfully trying to read my Bible one chapter a day. And then that's the chapter that I land on <laughs> when I'm being asked by my employer, are you going to tell us what injection you've got? Have you got the injections? And I, I, that was a great encouragement to remember how to stand just like the, what happened in Daniel. That's really helpful, Greg. And, and, um, just as we close down the conversation, um, something that is just even important on that is just this parallel, this, this, this parallel that we see throughout history, um, throughout biblical history and then recent and modern history, you know, when, when we've done so much work in the West to think through what it means to live with the most amount of Liberty, the most amount of responsibility and for that to then those two ideas human responsibility and human liberty to lead into flourishing um 
it's it's quite remarkable how quickly people gave all of that away uh, in the name of a, a cold uh, or maybe a more severe cold season. So we, we just need to keep listening. We need to keep listening to these adverse um, reaction stories. Um, we need to track them and hopefully the medical community will recover at some point um, to be able to say, yes, this, this was, this was a major wrong and hopefully the citizen inquiry will, will, will lead towards that. So uh, Dr. Gregory Chan, uh, my my new friend, and I, you were such a wonderful host when we spent a little bit of time together in Alberta. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for um, articulating your findings for us and, and, and speaking from your expertise in the medical community. Uh, folks, thank you for listening again. Please share this video around. There's a lot of Christians. You know, my wife just had a conversation this week with someone who said, have you rethought your choices over the last three years? And the response was, nope, no, I'm all good. And um, even with all of the continuing information about that that's coming out, people are still struggling to see um, what happened in Canada and, and, and across the world. So would you please share this video out? Um, would you please go to our libertycoalitioncanada.com and donate to our legal fee, uh, our legal um, department in the same way that um, Greg had, had legal support. We want to give legal support to Christians who stand and give us a five-star rating. Go about your day. Godspeed. <laughs>